from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Pour nous, en Deutschland, est le bekenntnis zum Vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, host of the Ask the CER podcast, where we ask you to write in with questions for our experts who will answer them. Today I'll be speaking to Senior Research Fellows Luigi Scazzieri and Elisabetta Cornago and our Director Charles Grant. We'll discuss defence cooperation, sustainable versus transitional investments and how the French presidential election landscape looks at the moment. Luigi, It's your first time on the Ask the CER podcast, so let's start with you. I'd like to ask you about UK-EU cooperation in security and defence. We've had a question on strategic autonomy, which you hear about more and more in the European debate. But for starters, could you explain to me what that is? Hello, Rosie, and thank you. So strategic autonomy refers to the idea that Europeans should be able to handle their own security even without US support because the US may not always be willing or able to underwrite security in Europe or its neighborhood. So to have strategic autonomy, European countries should have the military capabilities they need, the command and control structures to run operations, and also a shared understanding of the interests and threats that they face. And in recent years, EU countries have launched a series of initiatives to build up their strategic autonomy. They've done so through the EU itself, for example, with the European Defence Fund, which is supposed to foster joint research and development of defence systems, or permanent structured cooperation, which is also supposed to lead to uh, greater synergies in the, in the defence field. And at the same time, some European countries have also tried to work more closely in formats outside of the EU, uh, like the so-called coalitions of the willing that have, for example, been used uh, in the Sahel or the French-led uh, European Intervention Initiative, which was set up by, uh, by France to make it easier for European armies to work together, to make them more used uh, to, to working together. And, and you could also point, I think, to diplomatic groups like the E3 of France, Germany and the UK as a form of European strategic autonomy in the, in the diplomatic field. So. What I'm saying is that there are several dimensions to European strategic autonomy. However, as a concept, it remains controversial. France has pushed for it very strongly. It's been its main advocate. But several EU members uh, are allergic to the term, uh, particularly Eastern members uh, of, the, of the European Union. They think that strategic autonomy risks undermining NATO, that it risks annoying the US. And whereas France and other proponents of strategic autonomy have tried to soothe these fears, saying, for example, that it's not meant to, uh, to undermine NATO, but rather to strengthen it, they've had quite little success uh, in doing this, in large part because actually the US has always been ambiguous about European strategic autonomy. Americans have insisted that Europeans should be doing more for their own defense. Uh, they've complained that they're spending too little, but at the same time, they've also worried that greater European efforts might weaken NATO and might actually also mean fewer uh, sales of US armaments in Europe. Thanks, Luigi. Now on to the question which Jan in Paris asked. They said, 
as Europe is facing new threats and the US seems more interested in confronting China, is the UK ready to help the EU to build its strategic autonomy and defence? How much so? Yeah, it's an important question because the UK is a very important player in European security and defence and its contribution to European strategic autonomy is potentially very large. I think the picture in terms of whether the UK will contribute to European strategic autonomy is mixed. The UK is involved in several of the pragmatic uh, small group cooperation frameworks outside of the EU that I uh, previously set out and that are one of the building blocks of European strategic autonomy. For example, the UK has helped France in the, in the Sahel and it's also part of France's European intervention initiative. It's uh, involved in joint arms development efforts. For example, it's new generation fighter is being developed together with Italy and Sweden. And the UK is, of course, a member of the E3 diplomatic format. At the same time, however, the, the UK's engagement with the EU dimension of European strategic autonomy has been very limited. The UK doesn't have a structured security and defence relationship with the EU. It doesn't see the EU as an important defence actor, and it sees EU military operations as generally lacking in, uh, in substance and effectiveness. And the UK has also shown little interest in the European Defence Fund, or in permanent structured cooperation, unlike the US, I should say, which has, uh, is in the process of joining some projects in permanent structured cooperation. I don't think that this British government will change its mind about working more closely with the EU uh, to help it progress towards uh, strategic autonomy, because it doesn't fit with its worldview or its political incentives. It will continue to emphasise NATO, and it will continue to work in small groups of like-minded uh, European countries. Of course, it is possible that a future British government might try to engage more closely with the EU dimension of European strategic autonomy, but I don't see any signs of that being imminent. And if it does happen, I think it's quite likely to happen if the EU's uh, defence industrial initiatives are seen to be uh, particularly successful and UK policymakers uh, think that the UK is losing out by, by not having a link to them. But we're, uh, we're far from being there yet. Thank you. Now, I know you wrote an extensive paper on how the EU and the UK could work together in foreign and security policy in the absence of a formal agreement. So for those of you who would like to know more, that paper's on our website. Moving on, something else that's being talked about a lot, particularly right now, is the European Commission's decision to include nuclear and gas in its definition of transitional activities that can contribute to the energy transition by mitigating climate change. This is a mouthful, and it relates to the Commission's taxonomy regulation, which is a classification system pointing to what are and are not environmentally sustainable economic activities. The Commission had held off on a decision about which label to apply to nuclear and gas investment, but now it has chosen to actually label them as transitional activities. This has prompted widespread pushback amongst climate campaigners, the German and Austrian Greens, scientists and others. Joanna from Germany asked, what are the concrete repercussions of this taxonomy decision? But perhaps before getting there, Elisabetta, as you're our resident climate expert, could you explain to us what the taxonomy is and what its labels imply? As you said, Rosie, the taxonomy is a set of rules indicating which investments can be classified as environmentally sustainable, and this is defined according to six criteria. 
climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, the sustainable use and protection of water and marine resources, the transition to a circular economy, pollution prevention and control, and the protection and restoration of biodiversity and ecosystems. So it's a broader focus than climate change only, right? Um, so to simplify a bit, an activity is considered as environmentally sustainable in the, in the taxonomy if it contributes substantially to at least one of these six objectives and if it causes no significant harm with respect to all of them. Now, as you said, on the very last day of 2021, the Commission issued its decision, which states that nuclear energy and natural gas investments are going to be classified as transitional activities if they respect some specific requirements, such as the maximum level of greenhouse gas emissions to generate electricity through gas power plants, for instance. Now, we're getting into the nitty gritty here uh, in some ways, but it's quite important because there is a lot of confusion, I think, on this point. A transitional activity is one step or actually several steps below the green sustainable activity label that I've just described. So transitional activities are activities that can contribute to one of the six goals we just discussed, and specifically they can contribute to climate change mitigation. How can they do that? Um, because they are activities for which low carbon alternatives are not yet available, but still correspond to best practices in terms of greenhouse gas emission levels in the sector or industry. Essentially, you can't do much better than that. Still, um, to get this label of transitional activity, you need to meet two conditions. They should not be an obstacle to the development and deployment of low carbon alternatives, and they should not lead to a lock-in of carbon intensive assets considering their economic lifetime. So this is also where there's been a lot of discussion um, because some argue that nuclear and fossil gas do not really meet these criteria. And so this begs the question of whether it's appropriate to label them not green, but not even transitional activities. So I think that there has been some confusion at the same time because it's probably not clear to all that there's a difference in the taxonomy between uh, you know, these, these sustainable and, and transitional activities. But you know, this is another big discussion. So let's get to Joanna's question first. Okay, we definitely needed that bit of background before getting to the actual question Joanna asked. So what actually would be the concrete repercussions for labelling investments in nuclear energy and gas as transitional activities, which we've now learned are not the same thing as environmentally sustainable activities? First off, uh, I like that Johanna is asking a question about what the long-term implications of this decision will be, because in the heated debate about the immediate decisions, it seems that sometimes we are forgetting about what the taxonomy is there for. Uh, so labeling things as sustainable, transitional, or nothing at all in the taxonomy does have implications for investment. The taxonomy does not mean that investors are required to invest only in green activities. They can still freely choose what to invest in. However, the taxonomy aims to function as a sort of traffic light to indicate what is truly sustainable, what is a support act in the transition, and what is better than nothing in the short term. Um, there are Two explicit repercussions for investors and economic sectors that are covered by the taxonomy rules. One is obligatory disclosure, and it goes towards more transparency in the financial sector. So some actors like asset managers have to disclose how the economic activities included in their financial products uh, fare in terms of the EU taxonomy criteria. And the second is voluntary. Companies can use the taxonomy as a credible standardized tool to indicate how their products or services fare in terms of sustainability and to plan investments. Normally then, investments should flow towards 
sustainable options, sustainable activities, whereas the taxonomy should uh, encourage investors to shun environmentally harmful carbon intensive ones. So these labels do matter uh, as uh, taxonomy aligned activities will attract institutional investors, retail investors and banks interested in green investments. So um, labeling nuclear and gas as transitional activities does put a kind of expiration date on them, on the validity attractiveness of such investments because of the criteria attached and because 2050 looms there as the horizon by which Europe aims to reach net zero emissions. But given the type of reactions uh, this, this decision has caused, given the debate we are hearing uh, these days, there is a risk that these nuance between sustainable and transitional activities is perhaps more confusing than, than helpful. And so we'll have to see how, how that goes forward. The second repercussion of this decision is on the functioning of the taxonomy and on how it is perceived in Europe and outside. We often talk about the Brussels effect as the way in which the EU, with its regulatory power, spreads regulatory standards beyond its borders. But in this case, many are wondering uh, whether the taxonomy can be taken seriously as the golden standard of sustainable investment if it starts mixing scientific criteria with political considerations or uh, on you know, which tech is preferable. So there is a risk that the EU is jeopardizing this positive Brussels effect by watering down the taxonomy. And one implication of that is that others may opt for the same watered down approach and that that this causes then the sort of the collective ambition uh, in terms of sustainable investment to, to lower. And another opposite implication is that some instead choose to implement stricter taxonomies and this weakens the position of the EU as a rule setter. So, for example, the, the Spanish Minister for the Energy Transition said that Spain could develop its own green standard, excluding uh, nuclear power and natural gas. Great, thank you, Elisabetta. And finally, Joanna asked, what is the connection between the EU taxonomy rules and the EU's post-pandemic funding for member states? So here, Johanna is thinking about the role of the taxonomy in the recovery and resilience facility. Um, the European Commission has set some requirements for member states to obtain grants and loans via this facility. For example, at least 37% of the funds they ask for should be devoted to climate-related investments. And the connection with the taxonomy is that in the detailed recovery plans that member states send to the Commission to apply for, for these uh, grants and loans, they were required to show that all investments and reforms uh, included in these plans respected the do no significant harm principle enshrined in the taxonomy. Fantastic. Thanks, Elisabetta. Finally, Charles, let's look ahead to one of the big events for Europe in the forthcoming months, the French presidential election, which will take place this April. Frank from Paris wrote in asking what the impact would be of a far-right leader on Europe. Could you please explain how this might change things? Well, I think we can reassure Frank that the chances of a far-right leader winning in France are greater than zero, but very small. Uh, I don't see any reason to believe that if one of either Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour gets through to the second round of the French presidential election, he or she would get more votes than Emmanuel Macron. They are simply unacceptable and beyond the pale for large numbers of French voters, however unpopular Macron himself has become with many, many sorts of voters which he has. So I don't think it's going to happen. But you can't rule it out altogether. Maybe Macron will get embroiled in some scandal between the first and second rounds, or maybe some unforeseen event will happen. If either Le Zemmour or Le Pen did win, uh, they would not pull France out of the European Union or the Euro. They've said as much. But it, France would be hugely disruptive and block all sorts of future European integration. 
They are both very protectionist compared to other potential French leaders. They don't believe in the single market or freedom of movement. They would oppose the, most of the new rules that are required to keep the Eurozone uh, on, a, on a stable basis. The biggest change are probably on foreign policy because both Zamora and Le Pen are very sympathetic to Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, and very hostile to America. So I think they'd be very disruptive for European foreign policy and in, in the EU and indeed in NATO itself. So it wouldn't be the end of the world quite, but it'd be very hard for the EU to function as it normally does with a, with a very disruptive country in the middle of it, led by Zamora or Le Pen. And I think Zamora would be even more extreme than Le Pen. And what about the centre-right candidate, Valérie Pécresse? Well, I think um, if I was Mr Macron, I'd be more worried about her than either Zemmour or Le Pen, because although Pécresse may not get through to the second round, and the the opinion polls put her close to Zemmour and Le Pen at the moment, if she does get through to the second round, she has a much greater chance of winning than either Zemmour or Le Pen, because nobody's scared of her. She's not beyond the pale. She's not a monster in the way that Zemmour and Le Pen appear to many people. Uh, so I think if she does get through, Macron could be in trouble, though opinion polls put him somewhat ahead at the moment. Now, if she was to win the presidency, that would not be a disaster for the EU at all. She's in reality a moderate centre-right pro-European. But to win the presidency, uh, she'd ha- she might well try and appeal to those who vote for Le Pen or Zemmour at the moment. There's a risk that she will pander to the right with some irresponsible policy commitments on migration, where she's been pretty tough. Overall, though, I don't think if she becomes president, her European policies will be very different to those of Macron. She'd be in favour, like Macron, of more flexible fiscal rules, support for making the recovery fund more permanent. She'd want to regulate big tech in a tough way. She'd probably support the carbon border adjustment mechanism to prevent carbon leakage outside the European Union. She might not make so much fuss about strategic autonomy, which Luigi was talking about, and European defence, which Macron's made one of his big themes, but we'll see about that. It's important to remember that every French president of the Fifth Republic so far has been a bit gaullist, believing that France has to stand up to the US, wants to stay in close touch with Russia, give a big role to the state in building up future technologies. So she would be a little bit gaullist, as all French presidents are. She'd probably be in her first few years less influential than... Macron has been because she's less talkative, less arrogant, has fewer big ideas. She would not dominate to begin with, but she she would, I'm sure, play a constructive role in the European Union. And for the UK, what impact would her appointment as leader have? Well, I think Mrs. Pecresse's policies on Brexit would be similar to those of Macron. I mean, France has taken a hard line on Brexit, harder than any other member state, not because Macron is an anglophobe, but because France's political leaders think it's in their interest to be tough on the Brits. And I think she would be similar. I mean, they want to be tough on the Brits to grab business for France, e.g. in financial services or automobile industry, to show that Brexit hurts so that other countries aren't silly enough in the way they see it to want to leave the European Union and to weaken the argument of the Le Pens and the Zamours. And finally, to protect what the French call the integrity of the single market, the idea that if you let countries like Britain have too much access to it without paying a price for it, you'll undermine its unity and its strength and its integrity. And I think any French leader would take a similar line. So I would not expect France to suddenly soften on the Brits if Mrs Pécresse becomes president. Thanks, Charles. Now, although not as momentous a shift as a new French leader would be, the change in the UK's Brexit minister, which happened in December, is no small change either. Liz Truss took over from David Frost, 
and she must continue negotiations on various issues, not least the Northern Ireland Protocol that the UK signed up to, which is about checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. James from Brussels asked, does Liz Truss's appointment signal a more constructive approach to the talks on the Northern Ireland Protocol? I'm cautiously optimistic, James. Um, I think David Frost had a huge impact on the talks. He dominated the British position uh, and nobody else really mattered on the talks except to some degree the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And David Frost believed you get more in such talks if you are tough and unyielding. I believe that attitude was wrong at least most of the time and Truss is more of a natural diplomat. She can be friendly and charming with people when she needs to be. She's already adopted a more emollient style, inviting Mara Sefcovic, her opposite number, to her country estate for the weekend at Chevening. On the substance, it's really too early to tell what line she's going to take. She'll actually have less influence on the substance of the talks than Frost had before her because she's just a a less influential figure in the government on this issue, I think, partly because she's not so close to Boris Johnson as David Frost was, at least initially, and also because she's not an EU policy wonk like David Frost was. She doesn't know the the nitty-gritty of the files. But my guess is, Rosie, that Boris Johnson and Liz Truss together will seek a more compromising position uh, than we've seen hitherto on the reform of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think they won't insist on the, uh, the role of the European Court of Justice as being expunged from the protocol as David Frost wanted to see. What they will want is a reduced bureaucracy at the border of goods travelling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. They want to reduce the the administrative hassle of of trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And I think that um, they will seek a compromise in this way for slightly different reasons. I think Boris Johnson will seek a compromise because he's, as we all know, incredibly weak politically at the moment because of the party gate scandals and other affairs. His authority is waning within the Conservative Party and the country as a whole and he simply hasn't got the strength to take on the European Union in a massive trade war right at the moment and if he repudiates the Northern Ireland Protocol and tears it up as Frost wanted to do at least some of the time then I think he, he, there would be a trade war and Boris just can't cope with that in my view. Uh, Trust wants to compromise I think to show she's a good negotiator, to show she's an effective politician but also to her credit, I think, because she sees the bigger picture. Faced with the growing strength of Russia and China, two, two, two countries that uh, do not wish democracy or liberalism well, she sees that the Western powers need to work together to defend liberal values. She's said this on a number of occasions. And the Western powers can't work together effectively against Russia and China if, unless the UK has a better, more constructive relationship with the European Union. And that means doing a deal with the Union to compromise on how to reinterpret the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I am cautiously optimistic that the deal on the Protocol will be done, and I think Mrs Truss will in fact deliver that. That will allow the British to move into a better phase in their relationship with the EU, where we can start building a better, more constructive relationship than we've seen for the last few years. Well, that's good to hear. Thanks, Charles. And it sounds as though there could be some brighter spots on the horizon for the post-Brexit negotiations. Well, that's perfect. I will let the three of you go. Thank you very much for joining me. This concludes the third episode of the Ask a CER podcast. Please do keep your questions coming. We'd be delighted to answer them. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.